Founded at the beginning of the UK lockdown, A Bit Lit is about conversation, celebrating and exploring theatre, literature and creative work across all periods and of all kinds. We've talked to professional wrestlers and about Ghostbusters and medieval sex positivity. We've looked at the histories of race, gender and sexuality. We followed migrating coconuts and the history of wine and cheese. We've gone from Jane Austen and Shakespeare to EastEnders via the history of early television, young adult fiction, photography, animation and documentary making. And with over 100 films already, many other subjects as well. Join the conversations at our website, abitlit.co or on YouTube and follow us on Twitter at abitlit. Sophie, hello. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. <laughs> How are you? I'm really good, thank you. Um, we're beginning our films by asking contributors just introduce themselves and give us a sense of, of their work. So would you mind doing that, please? No. Uh, my name is Sophie Russell. There's a military helicopter going. <laughs> you can it's, hear that. It's a parade in honour of uh, you doing this film. Yeah, maybe. Um, <laughs> they come to pick me up. And... Um, <laughs> I'm an actor and I have worked a lot at the Globe Theatre recently, yeah. um, finishing up in January with playing Richard III in Richard III in the San Wanamaker Playhouse. Um, that, end, that was a whole year of work which ended all of the Henry plays with the Richard III. Um, that was quite an intense um, five-play year. That's what I've been up to. And then... Obviously, a big stop to everything, a stop to art, um, feeling quite useless, but also aware that art is neat. You suddenly become aware what what art brings. You became a bit complacent about, oh yeah, theatre's banging out plays, <laughs> but actually what, what that meant to be able to go and see a play with other people, be in a play and share a story with other people, it's become quite, I feel quite sad that it's not there. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I hear you. It's re-evaluating what it is we do and why it's important. So that's a good thing in yeah. a way. But also it's clearly not about theatre right now. It's about medicine, <laughs> about uh, looking after people. So it's a whole confusing situation. Yeah, although theatre is also about life and about the, what we do with life. So it, it does feel important as well. And yeah, I agree with you that we're in this weird moment where it feels suddenly like theatre is not important and also super important all at the same time. And certainly being together in a live environment and swapping stories and ideas um, together feels really vital and important. Um, for anyone listening who um, is not familiar with uh, the cycle of Henry plays that you mentioned, Shakespeare clearly had a bit of a, a fetish for uh, men called Henry because he just couldn't yes. stop writing. Here is another play about a king called Henry. I think he writes eight him. in total. But you're describing, oh. you're describing the trajectory from Henry V to Henry VI. Henry IV. Henry the fourth. Okay. Part one and two. Don't forget right. them. I'm sorry. <laughs> I thought you said five plays. I was trying to do the maths. But no, of course, because you amalgamated plays, didn't you? Yeah. I'm being stupid. So... Um, the, the Shakespeare trajectory is um, two Henry IV plays, Henry V, no less than three Henry VI plays. That man could not get enough of Henry VI. Exactly, which uh, we did like, uh, in a wanna. 
Yeah. Three in one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, followed by Richard III. And yes, you did an amalgamated production of Henry VI. Yes. I've got yeah. that right. We actually yeah. left out part one entirely. Um, it's kind of a bit clunky. So we just got rid of that and just did two and three. Not my decision. The uh, uh, edits decision. Editors. Right. Yeah. Do you know that um, there's a, we, we're fairly sure that Henry VI part one was written last um, in a kind of George Lucas prequel style. So actually Shakespeare originally also left out part one. <laughs> I think it feels like that. It just doesn't read as well as the others. It's just, just clunks. So you can't really bother to turn the page, whereas the other ones are like thrillers. Right. Yeah. Okay, great. And yeah, I can also see that doing that long trajectory, that long, that long history and that long story, and then to come to an abrupt end with the current moment must feel particularly weird when you've been telling, you know, you've been following these people's lives, characters' lives all the way through decades. That must feel quite yeah. strange. I mean, that was... That, yeah, it was a very, it's a very intense period of being very, very busy to, yeah. a, to a total stop. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's a shocking, shocking thing. <laughs> and you were playing Richard III, which is um, one hell of a part. <laughs> Can you tell us a bit about what it was like to, to play that role? Um, terrifying and also addictive. Like obviously very daunting. I spent a lot of the early rehearsals worrying that I wasn't Benedict Cumberbatch. You know, people expecting to see a male of some note take on a role like that. So sort of struggling with my own feelings that um, I'd be somehow inadequate. Mm. Um, but then getting my teeth into it and just, it's just such a fun ride. I mean, you learn, I, I'm still learning, I was still learning about it by the end of the run. I felt like, but the, my journey from the beginning of, of performing to the end of performing, which was a couple of months, two months, three months, um, was vast. <laughs> uh, my development, because at first you're literally in control of the lines, uh, which are, uh, it's a huge amount of lines. Mm. So you're getting those under your skin is such a big task that at the beginning you're just proud to have said all the lines in the right order basically <laughs> and then you suddenly are, you know some scenes you hit and some scenes you don't hit and then by the end you're like ah oh, this is it's such a, a symphony but um also playing the, the character who doesn't care about anyone else is so addictive and the only thing i could find to fill that void when it ended apart from being really cruel to people, which isn't advisable in your real life, fun as it might be, um, <laughs> is watching SAS Who Dares Wins. Oh. That, that's the only thing that filled the void because just people being really ruthless with each other. There's a weird like need to, um, to see that played out after you've played Richard III. Um, yeah, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think you'll ever have so much terrifying fun ever again what other parts are written like that and and I got to play it as a kind of middle-aged woman it was it was brilliant it was brilliant and is that that energy that you took from the part that you then had to get out of your system with the SAS show is that mm. about the atrocities or is it about how Richard dominates just by I mean you talked about how many lines you had how he dominates just vocally or his presence on the stage is it about in other words kind of 
horrifying acts and and sadism and cruelty or is it just about being such a uh, you know that's such a massive role in an already massive play i think it's um glenn mcdonald at, at the globe who's the do you know glenn she's the um movement director and alexander technique but also so much more than that um woman at the globe huge knowledge she just said well you've you've opened the power portal what you've done is open the power portal and now you don't know how to put it put it back because you've been in control because you've been the boss of everything <laughs> on stage um yeah you're, it's so unapologetic and you're so manipulative and you're so controlling of every scene i remember early on in the in the dress rehearsal sort of stage michelle came to see it michelle terry that runs the globe and she was like yeah sophie sophie's doing well but she doesn't know how to be in the middle i was like what do you mean what do you mean you're used to being a, a good actor like being on the side and feeding in to what's happening and if you're not speaking to give focus to the other person no you've got to stand in the middle and suck all the energy out of the room you've got to be in i was like oh but it took me a while to to take center stage and not worry that I was in anyone's way or blocking anyone's line. The whole point of him is that he's sucks. He's just like greedy for control and, and power and energy. Um, so tuning into that, opening the power portal, then <laughs> you've got to put it back and just be normal again. It's like, it's a bit difficult. Yeah, I'm an 80s kid and I watch many films about power portals uh, and what happens if you open them and right. <laughs> getting sucked into terrifying places. Um, exactly. That, that resonates very deeply. <laughs> uh, exactly. You can't go back. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that is really fascinating, isn't it? Because even when other characters are speaking in that play, they're almost always speaking about Richard or responding to things he's made happen. There's very yeah. little in that play which is not about him or his actions. Yeah, that's what that's certainly way it, the way it feels like, and I've certainly never played a part that's been the centre of everything like that before. I don't think, male or female. Mm. No. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. And um, if it's all right to be kind of slightly tediously historical about it for a moment, I wonder if there's something about what Shakespeare's doing as well in terms of shifts, because the Henry VI plays, which he writes just before Richard III, feel like ensemble pieces where no one is dominating in that particular way. Um, whereas Richard III, I think I'm right in saying, is the largest role that Shakespeare ever writes, possibly in tension with Hamlet. I forget who wins that particular battle, but you know, he goes yeah. from writing these deeply ensemble pieces, which are about civil war and two sides against yeah. each other and factions to a world which is dominated by this one crazy dude. Yeah. Exactly, I've got another crazy dude here. Hey, hi, crazy dude. Hello. <laughs> hello, how are you doing? Thank you, I'm a bit busy talking to this <laughs> man Andy about things. Could you, what are you doing playing with Lego? <laughs> are you going to be quiet? Frankie, I'm telling Don't worry, don't worry. <laughs> Hi Andy, come on. I told you. <laughs> Hi Andy. Love it. Um, hello. <laughs> Richard III is sort of a play about 
inconvenient children as well, isn't it? Obviously, <laughs> I'm not suggesting we, we take any, any lessons from that play, but uh, yeah, it feels like an appropriate thing to happen in a discussion of Richard III. <laughs> yeah, I completely forgot the question you asked me before uh, that. Happened. I think I've probably forgotten it as well. So but it's about, said... about what it feels like to go through that shift um, in a, from a play world which is about, oh, yeah. to a play world which is about this one focal character. Yeah, because, yeah, that was what's so great about doing both, because Richard appears in Henry VI before he appears in Richard III, and you get to see him as part of the pack, as part of the, like, yeah. whole collection of people who are just snatched, trying to snatch the crown, and all behaving just as badly as each other, and he's part of the team, and he's like, yeah, well done, Richard, you've done all the killing, well done. And then suddenly he goes too far, and... Um, but but yeah, fascinating to play that full journey from being one of the gang to then suddenly deciding to kill all your gang and be the top dog. But um, I don't expect that. You don't get to do that that often, play play the whole sequence like that. So that was a real, that's really special as well. And yeah, you were, you're totally in, in part of the ensemble in Henry VI. You have that one moment where he suddenly stops and goes, Hmm. and does like a very long speech but before that he's just part of part of the gang yeah yeah and again there are um there have been suggestions of that speech in henry the sixth is written later once which referred has been written to kind of set up oh, no. the earlier plays as a as a as a prequel um i don't yeah. know if, i don't know if that's right or not um but it, it does feel like quite a different moment doesn't it where yeah i mean the other yeah. thing that, sorry yeah, he just step, he steps and, and does what he does. It's a precursor exactly to, to Richard, to this cat, this person that's going to be boss of everyone. Yeah, and the everyone, if we can sit with that for a minute as well, and the idea of the power portal and sucking energy out of the room, is it, for me, the other thing that's different about Richard is that the room for him is not just the court and the palace and the throne, but it's also the audience in the theatre. Um, in a way which is very different to anyone else in either in any of in any of those plays, I think. I don't know if that was something that you were you were thinking about or working with with that role. Definitely. That just felt like automatically definitely a thing to me. And whether that's because I'm I've I'm sort of a clown in, in training, as in I've I trained as a a sort of clown actress. <laughs> Not clown as in circus clown, but uh, somebody who's interested in in comedy and theatre. Mm. To me, yeah, the the that's full of of um, black comedy and of and of and of involving the audience in every every step of the way. And yeah, we pushed. We definitely pushed that. Mm. I mean, you can't ignore it. That every Richard talks to the audience, and that relationship is is delicious, isn't it? And, and that's how Shakespeare reels you in because you're like, whoa, this guy's, this guy's fascinating. And then suddenly he's, he's doing the most atro atrocious things. Yeah. And you still, you still feel a certain intimacy with him. That's the skill of the play. Mm. Um, I actually had never seen it done. I'd never been and seen it in the theater, mm. but I can't imagine it being is is there a version where he doesn't want to be friends with the audience? He doesn't want to, you know, that there, there's no way of doing it like that, is there? Question. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. I guess one of the things that happens, um, 
after the playhouses that Shakespeare's working in, after they get closed in the middle of the 17th century, they get closed by parliament. There's a 20 year period where public theater is essentially illegal. And when they, they reopen, they're in the West End, they are indoors, they are expensive, they're elite, they're strongly associated with the king and the royal family. Um, and it's not quite as quick as this, but theater starts to feel safer, um, um, calmer, less likely to cause a riot. And slowly the architecture of theatres turn into what we think of as a kind of proscenium arch, traditional 19th right. century space. And so it's, I mean, that space makes it harder, I presume, to talk to the audience because suddenly you can't see them if you've got lighting coming at you and not falling on the audience, which is very different to you performing either in an outdoor space or as you were doing at the Wanamaker, which is a, um, is a sort of, uh, what they call it a prototype, I think, kind of prototypical reconstruction of what a 17th century playhouse might have looked like. Yeah, and the, sh the shared light of, of candlelight where you can see everyone again. And uh, there's certainly that, that's really interesting what you said to me, what you said just then about um, less likely to cause a riot when you get into the proceeding march, because that is the, certainly something you experience at the Globe, mm. particularly outside when the audience can just take over the energy. Mm. They, they are as much, they're as much an element that you that can take over the play mm. in a proscenium march version you you feel like with the lighting and with your performance and the distance you're controlling the space whereas in the globe the, the audience can definitely take over i saw the the biggest feeling i had was when we did amelia mm. in the globe which was a piece of new writing about a real person <laughs> called amelia lanier have you probably read about it or, or know about it mm. um I saw it. You saw it in the Globe right. or in the yeah. West End? Yeah, yeah. In Both. the Globe, yeah. But the feeling that the audience, it, um, it felt like, uh, it felt out of control. When, when we did that play and the way the audience responded, so joyfully, but also full of rage and full of like fired up anger about the state of women being ignored over history, which is what the play was about, it was like, I remember being frightened. I remember sort of going out there and, and actually feeling frightened of, of the force of energy that was in, that was in the house mm. and that it was going to take over us somehow and they were going to like, they were in charge of us. It was really strange. There was one particular night, probably quite a hot night, where, where it just felt like anything could happen, like it was going to explode. This is really wonder, thrilling, but I've never felt that in any theatrical situation before you know you you always feel like you're in control of the responses into some level but this was it was wild it was a wildness which is what the globe's about which is great when you really catch it yeah mm. yeah and again it makes me wonder what those playhouses and those plays were doing in their own their own moment because at that time it was so unusual to mix with strangers in any number let alone with a thousand or two thousand people it's illegal in this culture to discuss politics and what else is a play like Richard III or Henry VI doing if not discussing politics? Um, and those playhouses, they did incite riot. Um, mm. And one other of Shakespeare's history plays, Richard II, seems to be intimately involved in an attempt to um, topple Elizabeth I from her throne, that the people launching um, a rebellion 
um, the night before, go to the Globe and watch a play about Richard II to kind of spur mm. them on to think about, about revolution. Um, and these plays are constantly asking you to do something else which is illegal. It's actually illegal in this culture to dream of the death of the current monarch. And these plays yeah. are constantly inviting you to dream. I mean, your character kills at least one current monarch and several in the line. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Could we talk a little bit more about um, um, about Richard III then as a as a performance? Um, and you you mentioned me to me before that um, it was very interesting, kind of finishing shows and seeing how critics had responded to shows. Um, could you tell us a bit more about either that or about the the challenges you faced when you were performing that role? Um. Uh, that was two questions. Was two, questions <laughs> two completely separate questions. But I, I mean, I wonder if the challenges you found with the role were connected in any way to the responses other people had to to the production, or if they just weren't. Well, it's interesting because it is, it's, I sort of veered away from reading reviews while we were doing it, at least until right towards the end, because because you know you're going to get talked about and if it's devastatingly awful you don't want to be thinking that every time you go on and try and do that part so but as I came to the end and was resilient enough to read you know ha read what people thought of it because I always find it interesting I always will read hmm. reviews of plays I'm in because I, I found it the critical response very interesting um and of course you focus on the negative ones that you know there's people that totally got what we were trying to do. And then there's other people that's like, yes, it's very fun. It's very shallow. It's a very shallow because it's, it's leaning on the comedy because it's, because that's, that's my taste. And that was the director's and the designer's taste. And so collectively we definitely enjoyed and leaned into the black comedy of the piece mm -hmm. rather than the troubled, um, desperately, um, kind of abused, deformed character that he is sometimes played as. So I, I have this kind of, and obviously that's fine if if people don't want Rich the Third to be a comic play, or they don't, or they don't like it when it's served up like that. That's that's fine, but it's the implication that a comic take on it is somehow shallower than anything is is shallow and is not as worthy of of the term art mm. as something that is more kind of troubled because it's true that i did kind of see it as a as a license to not care about anything or anyone and just be this this extreme of a of a Psych is it psychopath or sociopath that doesn't care about there's no empathy until the very end when suddenly he just catches he catches conscience doesn't he? his conscience just suddenly starts to exist he's like what the hell is this he's angry that his conscience has kicked in but the rest of the play he doesn't he doesn't care about any of that stuff and i think that's one of that was one of the meatiest and joyfulest things to play that lack of of um concern what anyone else thinks this utter ruthlessness it it drives him until the end but like having not seen anyone else do it i don't know if there's a much more sort of deeper way to do it that i missed out on <laughs> but i certainly had a lot of fun
um, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I'm sort of hearing you and thinking both about gender and about genre. Um, and I totally second everything you're saying about the importance of taking comedy seriously, keeping it, keeping it comic and keeping it fun and keeping it wonderful. But at the same time, um, it's, it's a craft and it's an art and it's joyful. And again, from a historical perspective, I sort of think one of the worst things that ever happened to genre was um, when Shakespeare's plays get collected together into this big book that people call the First Folio. Yeah. That book's not called the First Folio, it's actually called Shakespeare's Histories, Comedies and Tragedies, yeah. and it separates them out as if they're different. Um, but actually, the tragedies are often hilarious and full exactly. of comedy in, in that sense. But I also wonder- Yeah, I had, to check. I had to check, I was like, oh, is this a tragedy? Because <laughs> if it's a tragedy, I probably can't do it comic. Oh, it's a history. Oh, that sounds like ambiguous. <laughs> probably do it. Do it like if it was called the tragedy of Rich the Third, I probably would have been like, oh, I can't do it. I can't, I can't make it funny. Oh, that's interesting. Don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Those that's things true. really matter because yeah. they're like, that must be how you're meant to do it. Some yeah. level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we also exist in a culture which seems to really like and valorize stories about terrible men and the oh. traumatic experiences which allow them and permit them to be terrible. And I guess last year's mm -hmm. film, The Joker, was a kind of epitome of that. And I also wonder if people were disappointed not to get that, that story. So there's yeah. also something there about, about gender as well, I think, as, as well as genre. And it's very exciting to have a female clown in that role for precisely that reason. Yeah. I, I yeah. Um, I hope I'll, I'll ever, I don't know if I'll ever get to play anything that interesting again. Mm. And is that because of a lack of roles? Mm, I think no. maybe that is opening up because of the, because of all the cross gendering, we are get we are now getting to play those roles. Pretty much, it's it's really quite common now, or certainly in the theatre. But um, yeah, we still we're still repeating this. Shakespeare's canon again and again and again, aren't we? I know I'm working at the Globe, so what, what do you expect? But um, yeah, I wonder. I mean, I don't have you you any if you have any thoughts on why <laughs> you have a lot of thoughts on why we're obsessed with Shakespeare. I'm sure, but <laughs> you know, it does seem like to the exclusion of like it's like it's like the, it's the greatest hits going again and again and again and again and again. And it's wonderful that we can shake them up by having women play men's roles and look at it through fresh eyes and do lots of smashing it about. But yeah, yeah we're kind of trapped, trapped in a Shakespeare reverence. Yeah. yeah, there are a bunch of issues there for me. I mean, I, I too am really excited about the cross-casting that's happening at the moment. But actually one thing that was unusual about your production is that quite often cross-casting will only cross-cast particular kinds of roles. And often you'll see older characters being cast as women or minor characters to the side being cast as women, but you won't see main focal roles. That was really exciting. That's I do, true. I do think we've lost a whole tradition of plays with fantastic female roles. You know, there's a, um, a play by a contemporary Shakespeare's called A Chase Made in Cheapside, which has 20 women on stage at one point. Um, there are plays with more women than men in them. There are plays with massive roles for, uh, for female characters. Um, and I, I think it is an 18th century thing that Shakespeare suddenly becomes 200 years after he's writing, suddenly becomes the best thing since sliced bread. And that's, that is partly about gender in that the Taming of a Shrew is ahead of its time in all the wrong ways in that the 18th yeah. century is kind of the height of patriarchal concepts of women belonging in the home. Um, 
And then Shakespeare's also really popular because he's writing the history plays and he's writing plays about Englishness and um, kind of mas- nationalism effectively. You know, the whole idea of this septed isle, this England yeah. is hu- hugely important from the 18th century onwards, not just in England, but in places like Germany and America, which are also trying to self-define as coherent countries. And from that moment on, he gets really heavily embedded into stories about nations and stories about men. Um, yeah. I found playing Henry V quite troubling. The, the thing, mm. the thing that, was, that saved it was we had, we had um, an amazing actress called Sarah Mancott playing Henry V, a woman, a black woman playing Henry V was like, that was what was making it work for me because the rest of it is, it's quite tiring. And it's also <laughs> about, it's about, isn't it? It's like, oh, let's go to war with France. Why? Because we want to. <laughs> and then and then oh come on we're so brilliant and it's oh just couldn't get into it just could not get into it luckily i was playing all the french people so i didn't have to get into it but <laughs> I found the whole play quite troubling mm. aside from sarah's performance which was excellent <laughs> well the globe has been doing such wonderful work with the histories and um, um the richard ii performed by entirely performed by women of color um as yeah, well it's yeah. been incredibly important yeah. for challenging where Shakespeare's women, women in the centre, like you say, not not playing peripheral roles across cast, but leading it, which yeah. has been that's what our ensemble did, and that was that was fantastic. Yeah, it's so interesting when it comes to gendering it. The, sorry, still going on. Go on. Gendering the other way, like men playing women. I think that mm. is much harder. We we experimented with that quite a lot last year, and to 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 differing success, I think, because it's just not it's not as comfortable for mm. some reason well for lots of obvious reasons mm. doing it the other way around but then yeah it's because yeah. men have taken up all the space so now it's weird when they take all the women's roles as well i suppose that'll be it mm. i'm answering my own question thank you but also flipping patriarchy as well right in that um yeah. women playing men are moving to into positions which we culturally thought of as powerful um yeah. and men playing women are going in the opposite direction so there's something there yeah. as well about how that gets read. Um, Sophie, I'm devastated to say we're nearly at the end of, of our time together. Um, I just want to wrap up some of your greatest hits uh, because I love the idea of Richard III um, in rehearsal right at the outset, trying to get in control of the lines, um, think, mm. thinking of himself or herself as a power portal and sucking the energy out of the room. Um, I really enjoyed you talking about Richard having a delicious audience, a relationship with the audience. That's mm. going to stay with me. And uh, most of all, I enjoyed you saying Henry V is quite tiring. <laughs> It really is. We're still at war. Oh, God. Yeah. Um, we're ending these videos by asking a question which might sound ridiculous to you, but um, there's no correct answer. We're just interested to hear what people have to say about it. But we're asking what the word literature means to them, whether it's to them a, a good word, a useful word, an unhelpful word, or maybe even if it's a word they don't really use, but just where it kind of where it sits with them. Is that a word you would find yourself using? And how do you feel about it? I don't think I use that word because... Um because it sounds like something a bit holy, like a bit, a bit worthy and uh, precious, or like, or like you uh, you can't mess with it. Say literature, it's like it's art, not entertainment. Yeah, <laughs> and 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 art is much has much more worth than entertainment. And we and yeah, I don't even know what the definition of literature is, but it's. I wonder if some of the adaptations of literature that I've done in the past would be 
would be seen as sort of graffitiing on it or because it, it, it feels like it's something solid and precious and untouchable yeah that's what yeah. literature is. the opposite yeah. the opposite of play is what it sounds like it means to you something you can't play with something you can't um, yeah or, or if you do play. then you run the risk of being told off mm. yeah <laughs> somehow okay. no yeah. that's great that's really helpful um thank you sophie it's been a fantastic conversation i've learned lots and i'm really grateful to you thank you very very much thank you randy take care